Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us and giving us your Son. You gave him. Uh, You were the uh, offended party, and yet you were the one who provided the way for us to escape your own judgment that we deserve. What love is this? Pray, Lord God, that we would think of your heart, and your heart toward us in Christ would lead us to have a similar heart, or though we know imperfect, but a similar heart toward those who are suffering, God. Be glorified in using us as your ministers of comfort. You are the God of all comfort, and you comfort us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort others with the same comfort with which you have comforted us. Lord, we believe that. So equip us better to that end so that you may be magnified and people may draw nearer to you in faith. And Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you here again. I didn't get to see you guys on the second weekend, and so I'm glad to be back here for the third. The topic I want to talk to you about tonight is something that I myself wanted to know more about. And so when they they reached out to us pastors and said, we we need some more topics for track three, this is something that I've wanted to study myself so that I could be better equipped to help those who have um, suffering that is fresh, a grief that is fresh. So when someone has walked through a tragedy, someone who has just gotten a diagnosis, someone who's just gotten that dreaded phone call, what should we do to help them initially? In the, the first days, weeks, maybe a couple of months as they're suffering with that tragic news, I know that we likely, or maybe those you know, have unintentionally caused hurt during this fresh grief to someone who is suffering, not because of, of a bad intent, an ill intent, but rather simply because we weren't sensitive enough or we didn't know exactly what would be the best kind of ministry to bring to that soul that is in the depths of despair in that moment. And so I want to help us um, move into a place where we're not going to bring hurt to people who are already hurting because of our lack of sensitivity when it comes to administering comfort to them when they are suffering initially. And so I hope that is something that appeals to you. I know that we all uh, have encountered people who have gotten such news. Maybe you are a person who has gotten such news. And I've had the uh, privilege of talking to a dear friend of mine um, who is, is on the other side of a major diagnosis and ask him some questions too. As I was studying for this, help me to understand what would have helped you the best. What were some of the most um, well-meaning and helpful comments and um, acts of ministry that you received? But what were some of the ones that were hard to hear, that hurt you? in a way that uh, you wish you had never experienced. Help me understand what was most helpful and what was not helpful during those initial days and weeks and even months. And he was a huge help to me as I thought through this. But um, let's go ahead and think about foundations as we get started. 
The ministry of comfort in this capacity takes its cues from the heart of God. I was praying a moment ago, I was trying to think of that very thing, that as we meditate on the heart of God, that can help propel us into compassionate ministry toward those who are with fresh grief. And so look with me at a few different texts. Look with me first at Psalm 56. Psalm 56. What do we see in the heart of God that will help us lay a proper foundation for drawing near to the suffering appropriately? Verse 8 of Psalm 56. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? And my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. Beautiful. God is for me. But you also have to really appreciate verse 8 here, don't you? Which is, you have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. And so we can... We can derive from this text that God is acutely aware of our grief. He is not uninterested. He is not aloof when it comes to our sufferings. He keeps track. He is intimately acquainted with everything in our lives, including the tragic news we receive and the aches and pains of our heart, the brokenness that we feel when we have received that phone call. Look with me in another text. Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verse 18. Maybe you know this text. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And so we can... Believe that God draws near to those who are in grief. He draws near to us in our grief. He is not simply one who knows, but does nothing about it, right? Sometimes we know of somebody's aches and their pains. We know of their brokenheartedness. But um, maybe because we have a little bit of a hard heart, we don't draw near to them. We don't draw near maybe because um, we're so fixated on what's going on in our own lives that we don't hear of that news and are made aware of it, then say, what can I do? What can I pray? What phone call can I make? What scripture can I use to encourage? But God, he's, he's not like that. He, he knows, he's acutely aware of our grief, but then he takes the next step, doesn't he? And he draws near in our grief. He comes to us. His presence is with us. And by the way, and I, I, maybe it's, this is just me, but I, I would hear that in the past, like God is with you. He, his presence is near you. He draws near to those who are brokenhearted. But you shouldn't just think that he comes near in some kind of spatial, locational way, and that's it, right? Like he's just kind of standing there next to us. You know, no, it's his presence with us means that his attributes are with us, right? His heart is with us. His, his characteristics of love and compassion are with us. His power is with us. His wisdom is with us. He draws near. That means his attributes also draw near to us. I remember um, 
listening to the audiobook version of A.W. Tozer's The Attributes of God. And he said, For the believer, all of God's attributes are on our side now. Isn't that an encouragement to give to somebody? All of his attributes are on the side of the believer in Christ. Look at Hebrews 4. We're laying the foundation of bringing comfort when grief is fresh. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. What do we see about Jesus here? Now, you have to connect verse 15 with 16. And I'll show you why it's so imperative. If you haven't made this connection yet, it is crucial that you do so. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He gets it, doesn't he? It's so important that we know that our Jesus, our great high priest, sympathizes with us because he has walked in our shoes, yet he never gave in to sin. And so that means that he felt the temptations even more than we have felt them because he never gave in to them. He never caved in and said, okay, fine. So he has felt the temptation even more. He knows what it's like to walk in our shoes. So what should that do for us in our grief then? The sympathy of Christ, verse 16 tells us. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because he has been there. Because he is human, because he lived life on this earth as one of us, then that should lead us to the throne of grace. That should lead us not just to the throne of grace, but, but not quaking, right, this, but boldly, confidently, the text says. So we need to remember that Jesus sympathizes with us in our grief. And, and in fact, we see him weeping in the Gospels, do we not? Jesus wept over Jerusalem in Luke 19, 41 through 42, we read, And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. They had rejected their Messiah. And so Jesus, knowing this, weeps. He knows what it's like to experience grief. We also see in the, the scriptures that Jesus applies gentle care to us in our grief. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. What characteristics can we expect to find in Jesus? We can start in verse 19, kind of get us into that first or the, the whole entire sentence there, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. He applies gentle care to us in our grief. You could look at this text and say that the bruised reed, right? The, the, the reed that's about to snap off. You've seen these, no doubt. They're just kind of hanging there, and you're like, just the right amount of wind, and that thing's going to go falling down to the water below. Or what else do we have? The, the wick, right? The smoldering wick. It's about to go out entirely. And so these are the weak. 
These are the helpless. These are the grieving. These are the suffering. And Jesus, He will not break them. He will not quench that wick. He applies gentle care to us. By the way, to understand some of these uh, aspects of the heart of God toward the suffering, right? Those who are hurting. Uh, this is probably well known, but you, you guys know this book, you know, Gentle and Lowly? Yes. yes. <laughs> She's like, I will, I will amen that, right? Um, I read this in 2020. Um, it came out in 2020. It was struck with this book and how applicable it was to our, our hurts and our pains and what we were walking through as a nation and, and as Christians. And so if you want to understand the heart of Jesus for those who are uh, in sin and in suffering, get this book, buy it, read it, and it has been truly a balm to my soul, and I know many at our church as well. And so that will help you, especially if you're seeking to help others draw near to God in their grief. When grief is fresh, you want to, you, you want to say, here, uh, I'm not the answer ultimately, but my Savior is. Let me tell you about how much He loves the sinning and the suffering. Right? Those who um, are helpless, those who are in want of grace. What else can we find in the heart of God? Jesus died to save us from our grief. Now, you say, well, what do you mean there? Didn't Jesus die to pay for our sins? Didn't he die for our forgiveness and our redemption? Didn't he, wasn't he punished in our place? What do you mean that he, he died to save us from grief? Well, if we look at Psalm, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 53, this famous passage of scripture, we see something important. Not just that God laid the iniquity of us all upon Jesus. He certainly did that. We find that in Isaiah 53. But we find something else crucial regarding sorrow. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we have seen Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. See... Not only did Jesus pay for our guilt, but he came so that the full effects of sin would be taken away too. Isn't that great? Not just the guilt of those sins, but, but the full effect of them. And so we know that Jesus coming to die, he was, he was a man of sorrows, we're told in verse 3 of this chapter, right? He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief himself. He bore our sorrows. And so that means that you and I, not only do we come to him and we have our guilt taken away, but we also can increasingly see that our sorrows turn into joys as we're sanctified, first of all. But then one day when we reach glory, all the sorrow is gone. And so we read in Revelation 21 verse 4, which I have listed there, that God wipes away everyone's tears. Right When the new Jerusalem comes from heaven and it is now established on earth, he will wipe away every tear. And all the things that made us grieve before, here in this life, in the here and now, all those things will be things of the past. They'll just be a memory. And so Jesus shows us his heart toward the grieving. That lays the foundation. It's because of all of that that we ought to not hesitate to draw near to those who have heard that voice on the other side of the phone, right? On the other end. Or the one who is sitting in the hospital room 
in despair, the person who has gone through the tragic accident, who has gotten the diagnosis, we should not hesitate to draw near to them in the appropriate ways because of our God drawing near to us in Christ in our grief. So let's get practical. The ministry of comfort begins with presence, with our presence. I want you to look with me at Job chapter 2. Before Job's friends opened their mouths, they were actually great comforters. (laughs) They were good counselors before they opened their mouths. And we see that. We read in verse 12 of Job 2, And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. Remember, he had had his, he's got boils from head to toe. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And then they sat with him on the ground, which is an expression of being with him in his grief. These, these are, these are signs that seem strange to us, tearing clothes, sprinkling dust on their heads, but it's all a sign of lamenting with Job in his grief. And so they're there. And so this presence of his friends with him is a lamenting presence. This is good. This is initially the way it ought to be. They did good here. Praise God. They came and they sat with him in his grief. Reminds me of Romans twelve fifteen as well. Weep with those who weep. Right? Weep with those who weep. And it's not always easy to do that. We, we're like, well, I, I, I don't feel the way I think I should feel right now in order to weep with somebody. Pray that God would give you a heart that sympathizes, right? If you don't see something you ought to see in your heart, then ask God to put it there. Sometimes when I'm reading the Psalms and I'm like, I don't think like that. I'm not thinking like David right now. I'm not thinking like the the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119. I'm not ecstatic and and exuberant praise right now. I don't feel that way. And I'll say, God, will you change my heart? Will you incline my heart to that disposition? So when you see something that's not there, that should be there, then just plead with God for it to be there. And say, God, forgive me that it's not. Lament, lamenting presence. They had it right there. But it's also, listen, it's a committed presence. Look at me back at our text here. They sat with him on the ground, verse 13, seven days and seven nights. That's a long time. Like, wow, they sat with him that long? We're such a busy culture, aren't we? We're so hectic. And the next thing we've got to accomplish, you know, we'll give somebody a little bit of time, but we've got to do the next thing. And the next thing after that, and the next thing after that. But their their presence with him is a committed presence. Seven days, seven nights. And so I would I would say to us, don't take your foot off the pedal too early with those who are fresh in their grief. Now, I'm not saying that you have to stay in one place with a person for, for seven days and seven nights. But here's what happens a lot of times. And, and you've likely heard this from people who have suffered. They have a loved one die, for instance. And people draw near to them in that grief for 
a week or two. And they have a lot of love. The funeral is wonderful. People are calling. They're sending cards. They're sending flowers. And and they're stopping by. But after a couple of weeks, it dissipates. And people stop calling, stop coming by, sending cards, and asking about how they're doing and how they can help. And so I would say keep asking, keep going. Don't say, I've done my due diligence because I gave a little bit of time. A committed presence. If we go back to the text here, it's, a, it's also a presence that doesn't need to fill the silence. This is interesting, isn't it? Verse 13, he says that, that they were there seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. They're, they're aware, they're, at least at some level, they're sensitive. They, they see how deep his suffering is, and so they're not saying anything. And that's, that's a good move. That's a good move for them, just to be silent. I feel like I, I'm afraid of silence. Can I confess that to you? I, I don't like the awkwardness of not having said anything for a while in a conversation. That feels strange to me. And I try to fill the silence. And you know what? My wife and I talk about this all the time. Both of us are the same way. We just want to say something, anything to fill the silence. And that can get us into trouble because we'll say something insensitive or rude or, or just, you know, inappropriate even. Like, oh, 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 that wasn't the time for that, you know? So I don't like silence, but silence, especially in people's deep grief, just you being there. The ministry of presence is a balm. To to show somebody that you are unhurried with them. That you aren't looking at your watch, you know, and I gotta say what I need to say so I can move on to the next thing. No, you just you can be still. You can be with them and let your presence be the ministry for a while. Let your presence be the ministry. We hate silence sometimes. And I think um, we hate silence because we're thinking about what we want and not what's best for the other person in their suffering. Proverbs ten, nineteen. Look there with me. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. We feel like we just got to spew out at the mouth all the time. But there's wisdom in restraining our lips. And certainly this would be one of those occasions where it would be good, especially initially in their grief. But it's also, listen, a listening presence. Because maybe they want to talk. Maybe they, they feel like they need to talk right now. And so you be a listening ear. You be ready to come and actually draw near to them and don't feel like you've got to fill the silence yourself, but if they want to talk, you do a good job of listening to them. If we're in Proverbs, you can look over at chapter 18 and there's, there's a lot to say about this kind of ministry. We need to listen because here, look at this in verse two. This is convicting. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. 
Social media, anybody? Sorry. But, but isn't that true? Um, we, we sit there and we think, okay, um, I'm not really listening to that person. I'm just waiting to say what I can say when their lips stop moving. I just want to express what's going on in my heart when really what we see in this text is that understanding is the wise way of looking at things. Like, draw near, listen to understand. Don't just sit there and think about what you want to say. There's pride in that. So be ready to listen to the suffering friend or loved one or church member. Look at verse 13. We've heard this one over and over again. If one gives an answer before he hears, it's his folly and shame. Maybe we don't know exactly what they need in that moment. And so we just start talking before we listen, before we get the answer, before we hear what they have to say, then we're just going to give what we think is best. And it may be misdirected, right? It may be misdirected when we actually say it because we weren't willing to give the time to hear them out. What is it they actually need in this moment? So ask questions. Receive first before you give the answer. I think that's what we need to hear there. And you also see something similar in verse 15. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge. And the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Listening is exalted in the scripture text when it comes to relationships. So it begins with presence. And that listening presence, by the way, I found this one when I was looking around today. I was kind of preparing afresh for this um, specific talk. And I looked in Proverbs 29, verse 20, and this is what it says. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hopeful for a fool than for him. Talking without thinking, right? That's what he means, hasty words. Talking without stepping back and saying, hmm, actually, what? What should I say first? And so do a lot of listening in the initial stages of grief when grief is fresh. The ministry of comfort continues with words. There does come a time when you should speak. There does come a time when you use words. But what kind of words? The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Are your words pouring forth repeatedly? When you do speak, life, right? Life and death are in the power of the tongue, another proverb says. You can do great good with your tongue or you can do great harm with your tongue, is what the proverb means, right? And so think about what you're going to say. So what kind of words should we use? First of all, I would say this, praying words. Praying words. Not just telling them, I will pray for you, but actually praying for them, right? Praying for them, and why not pray for them in their presence, right then and there? Let's petition God together. Let's lean on Him together. Let's seek Him together right now. John 17. Have you ever considered this, that it begins, John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus praying to his father and says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So he had been teaching his disciples in the upper room, right? And then he starts praying and he's praying for them in front of them. 
I don't, we don't always make that, um, that connection, but that's exactly what he's doing. He's praying for his disciples right in front of his disciples. And so you see, starting especially in verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And he goes on, and he says, verse 9, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. And then he goes on, um, keep them in your name, verse 11, that they may be one even as we are one, he says. He goes on, verse 13, but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I do not ask, verse 15, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He's praying for them right in front of them. Why, why wouldn't we do that? What a ministry. And I, I've heard people say that. When, when, when you pray for them in front of them, man, that sometimes that means so much more for, for them than you actually giving them some kind of exhortation or encouragement. Just to pray and, and for them to hear that prayer and then join you in that prayer. That's ministry. Pray with them in their presence. Don't just say, I will pray for you. Do it. Because you know, if you're like me, you know. When you tell somebody, you tell somebody, I will be praying for you. Maybe you're well-intentioned in that, but we'll forget. Many times we do forget. So why not just do it then and there? And then you can be like the Apostle Paul. Tell them what you're praying for them. If, if, if you have been praying for them, like maybe, maybe, uh, you've gone, you've had to go home, you've had to spend some time with your family, you're not with them, um, continually, but you want to encourage them. You think, okay, how can I encourage them today? You could text them. You could write them a card and say, here's what I have been praying for you. And that would be an encouragement, right? So Paul does that in his letters. Look with me at a couple of these. Look at the Colossians chapter I'm sorry, Colossians 12. No, it's Colossians 1. I apologize. There's a 2 in there for some reason. There is no Colossians 12. Like, you're a pastor? What's the problem with you? <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. You guys have the abridged version, so... Yeah. No, in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. And so... From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance, patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in light. And so he's going to tell them, here's what I've been praying for you. I've been doing it frequently, and here's what I'm actually praying for you. In Philippians, he does something similar. Verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. But then he goes on verse nine and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So these are just examples and, and this is not the only time that Paul does this where he tells them what he's praying for them in particular. 
And you can do this. You can, you can, you can tell them in a text. You can tell them as you have them on the phone. You can also send them a card and that would be a ministry to them. But also pray for their circumstantial welfare. Okay? Whether that be healing. Right? Whether that be the, the mending of a relationship. An opportunity to open up that would, would mean that they, they got that operation. So, circumstantial welfare, just because, um, there is such a thing as the prosperity gospel, doesn't mean that you shouldn't pray for people to have circumstances, um, be blessed, right? Or that you shouldn't pray for people to have healing. Do that. But let's remember that that's only um, something that's of, it's not primary in its importance. The spiritual nature of things is primary, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't draw near and pray for people's circumstances to change for the better. We see that in, in scripture text. Um, Romans 15, Paul, Paul asks for this, for his circumstances to be different. Romans 15, verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Right? So he's, this is safety. He's praying for safety. And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Right? So that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be fresh in your company. I want to come to you, so pray these prayers so that I can make it there. Right? There's nothing wrong with praying for circumstances to be a certain way, right? As long as we remember that if God decides not to answer that prayer that way, that we say, your will be done. Your will be done. You know what's best. I trust you in your wisdom and your power and your goodness to know what's best for me. And so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna turn for you and shake my fist at you because you didn't do what I asked of you. That's more of a demanding spirit instead of a spirit of humble dependence and love. So yes, pray for them to, for their circumstances to improve. But this also becomes an opportunity to pray for spiritual welfare. Okay? And, and what you can do here in that is once you pray, like maybe, maybe you're sitting there with an individual who is in the midst of grieving over tragedy. You pray for their circumstances to tr- change in some way, but then say, Lord, but if it doesn't, if, if you choose not to change their circumstances, then may they cling to you. May they remember that you are good. May, may they know you all the more and trust you all the more. May you show them who you are, that you are the God of all comfort. And even though their circumstances aren't comfortable, will you comfort them with peace in their souls, with your Holy Spirit, through your word and through your people? Do you see how that becomes an opportunity to pray for the spiritual? Even if you don't answer this prayer the way we prayed it, God, then will you please come in these ways and minister to this person and draw near to them in your compassion and in the heart that sympathizes with the grieving. So we see this kind of prayer as well. I love what Paul says in Colossians chapter 4 about Epaphras. Epaphras was the one who planted the church in Colossae, Paul didn't actually know them personally, but he's writing to them because of what he's heard about them through Epaphras. And Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul says, Epaphras, who is, in, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, 
greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Isn't that great? This is, he's struggling. I love that language. Would we struggle for our suffering friends? Struggling in prayer that they may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. I love that. Lord, help us to be strugglers in prayer for those who are our loved ones and church members. Okay. And you can look, you can also look at Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 19 to see uh, what Paul prays for the Ephesian church as well. Okay. Let us keep going. The ministry of comfort continues with words, careful words in fact. Careful words. Now, this gets really practical. And I'll, I'll, before we go any further, I want to recommend a book to you. Okay? Um, this come, um, the majority of this is really taken right out of this book, Being Here by Dave Furman, How to Love Those Who Are Hurting. Okay? So I've taken, really, this, this whole section here is pretty much me adapting things from this book. All right? In particular, chapter 8 of this book. Fantastic reference on this very subject that we're talking about. So I highly recommend Dave Verman's book, Being There. Okay, so careful words. Don't try to fix it. If we're talking about initial grief, or we're talking about fresh grief, that's not the time to fix it, right? Or to try to fix it. Like we talked about, just go there. Be with them. Be present. Like what Proverbs 15.28 says, similar to what we've already talked about a little bit, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Okay? I'm not saying trying to fix it's an evil thing, but certainly we want to be the kind of people that say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna think, I'm gonna pray, I'm going to consider the best way for me to talk to this person right now. I'm going to bring care and consideration into my words toward them. Instead of trying to fix the problem, right? do this. Ask questions to help you understand their grief. This, this will help you too. If you don't feel the weight of that grief, if you're not in a place where you feel like you can weep with them, then try to understand where they are. I think that will really help us get to that point. Tell me more about what you're feeling. Tell me how, tell me about, um, what this person meant to you or, or what it feels like to be on the other side of this. I, I want to know. I want to know so that I can grieve with you, so that I can pray better for you, so that I can minister to you better. Ask them questions so that you can sympathize. Also, so that you can sympathize, I would say, um, proactively read books that can help you sympathize with those who are suffering in particular ways. I'm thinking of biographies in particular, or memoirs. Now, I'll I'll recommend a couple of them to you. Johnny, An Unforgettable Story, Johnny Erickson Tata. I listened to the audio book of that a few years ago and was tremendously blessed. She recounts that whole accident of her diving when she was 17 and becoming a quadriplegic. And how the Lord brought her low. And she describes it in such detail and how the Lord um, brought his comfort to her in a way that wasn't just like happy slappy. It was, it was deep. It was raw, but it was real. 
And so you can read that to help you uh, learn how to sympathize with those who are really walking through tragedy. Um, uh, last year, another book came out called Seasons of Sorrow by Tim Challies. Um, his 21-year-old son died. They, they didn't know how. Um, he just, he was at college, a boys college on the Southern Seminary campus and, and he collapsed while they were playing a game. And they don't know what happened and why it happened, but he died. He was a believer, praise God. But he writes about it in this book, Seasons of Sorrow by Tim Challies, about losing his son whom he loved so very dearly. Reading these books can help us to sympathize instead of trying to fix it like with an insensitive heart. By the way, uh, ask friends. Maybe you know people who are on the other side of deep tragedy. And it's been some time, it's been years perhaps. And you say, I, w- I want to know what that was like. Because I, I want to know, because I love you, but also I want to know how to minister to people who walk through tragedy that's similar to yours. Will you help me with that? And they'll tell you. Just like my friend that I talked about earlier who was able to share those things with me now that he's been on the other side of this for some time. Careful words also are... Words that don't try to comfort by using sentences that big, begin with at least. Okay, and here's, here's what he means by this, and this is what Dave Furman gets at. He means this. Pointing sufferers, right, to someone else who is worse off. But that only minimizes their pain, doesn't it? And this suggests that their grief is, is an overreaction. At least it's not as bad as this person. At least you're not in this part of the world where they're suffering in this way. At least um, you're not in war-torn Ukraine. Or uh, you could, There's so many other ways in which we could point to somebody else who is suffering and say, at least it's not that bad. Now, you, again, I can see why people might want to say that uh, with a well-intentioned heart. But here's what happens. They are felt... Or they feel when you do that as if their grief is is silly, right? Almost like they just need to get over it. My wife and I have conversations about this. It 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 bothers her when when um I'll say things like, Well, you know, we're we're not in that part of the world. I mean, imagine those people who have to live in that country and endure that all the time. And I'll say things like that sometimes when she's struggling or she's suffering or something. And she'll say, well, don't make me feel like this isn't real pain. You know, like this isn't real suffering. Um, it is real, even if it's not the same. Okay? Just because it's not the same doesn't mean it's not real suffering. We have to remember that. Do you, do you want to see a reason for that? Look, look with me at uh, James. Book of James. This is interesting. There's not just one kind of trial, is there? There's not just one kind of trial. This is what we read in chapter 1 of James. You know this text. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why does he say various kinds? He doesn't pinpoint exactly what the suffering is or the trial is. He leaves it open, various kinds. And so, yes, there are people that are suffering in ways that you're like, I can't even imagine that. But it doesn't mean that the suffering that we have going on here in, in our part of the world, in our context, isn't still suffering. And so we should count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds, not just one kind of trial. Dave Furman says this, 
when a person's experience of his real pain is invalidated, then he is not pointed to Christ for hope and help. Why bother with Jesus? Why bother Jesus with something that's really no big deal? Are you really going to need to go to him? I mean, this is just, all you need is a little nudge in the right direction, right? It's not that big a deal. If you invalidate someone's suffering, then they won't see their need to go to Christ. It's, it's, the, same, it's the same for a person who is, is an unbeliever. And if you tell them that sin is just like, you know, it's, just needs an adjustment. You just need an adjustment in your life. <laughs> You know, it's, it's just fibbing, right? Oh, it's just boys will be boys. Then someone doesn't see how awful sin is, therefore they don't see that they need to run to Christ for refuge. It's kind of similar to that, isn't it? We need people to understand, yeah, okay, I believe that your suffering is real, so that they will see that, yeah, you can't handle it on your own. So let's go to Jesus. Let's go. Let's go remember what the Word of God says. Let's pray to Him. Let's lean on Him together. So... That can be helpful. Instead, we can point them to the sympathy of Christ, like we already talked about. As the one who understands fully what the sufferer is experiencing. I love that. Jesus knows. You might not know. You might have not have walked through similar circumstances. You haven't gone through that valley but you can bring them to the one who has. Who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Who sympathizes with us. And so, I love that. Jesus Christ, because he suffered the, the wrath of God on the cross for our sins, no one has suffered more than him. And so he, he understands everybody's pain, everybody's sorrows. Let me bring you to the one who gets it. Maybe I don't, but I'm going to introduce you or, or remind you of the one who does instead of just saying, at least it's not that bad. At least it's not that bad. But this, don't talk about their pain too much. Don't talk about their pain too much. Right? They, they have to live with their pain. And so if, if that's all you ever talk to them about, then, man, that's exhausting. My friend told me, you know, um, it was helpful when people would just come and they'd pick me up and we'd go just walk around, you know, like, like Academy together, you know. Or we'd go, just, we'd go do something kind of fun together. And just we'd laugh together about things again. Just gave gave me a breath of fresh air and and it gave me a a break from having to think about the struggle and that was a ministry to him. All right, so we we don't want to talk too much about their pain because the struggle is not their identity. Instead, you should reinforce their identity in Christ and your ministry to them. You are not the trial, you are not the tragedy. You are. Like Galatians 4, 4 through 7 says, a child. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 
beautiful. And there's so much more to our identity in Christ than just being children of God, right? Yes, we're children of God. We should embrace that, but there's also so much more. You, you are, you are his servant as well. You're his image bearer too, right? You are redeemed out of the slave market of sin and you are now a slave of God who is the greatest master. If you want more help in that and helping people to embrace their identity in Christ, there's a couple of books you might want to look into. Um, Jerry Bridges wrote a little book called Who Am I? A great little book, Who Am I? It walks through like eight chapters, I think, of our identity in Christ. Or there's a new one that just came out by Paul Touches called Remade. Remade, and it's like a devotional. I forget how many days worth of devotionals where it's just, here's who you are in Christ. Here's who you are in Christ over and over and over again. And maybe you can walk through your suffering friend or walk with your suffering friend through such a book to help them embrace that identity so they don't see the tragedy as their identity. Remade. Remade. Paul Touches. T-A-U-T-G-E-S. Yeah. T-A-U-T-G-E-S. Don't talk about their pain too little, on the other hand. Why? Why would that be the case? If we don't bring up the struggle, or we do so rarely, it conveys a lack of care. I mean, this is a really big deal. This is really, this is really tragic for them. And if you're especially close to that person, it expresses a lack of intimacy, like... Well, I thought we were close, but you, you're not talking to me about this. And, and that person might think, well, I just think that they don't want to talk about it anymore. Like they have to walk through, they think about it all the time. I just wanted to give them a break. And, but okay, let's balance things out. Not all the time, but yes, some of the time. To show that you're thinking about them in that way and you're praying for them in that way. First Peter 3 verse 8 Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Especially look like those two words, sympathy and tender heartedness there. We need to apply that to our loved ones who are fresh in their grief. Don't promise immediate deliverance. Don't promise immediate deliverance. Okay? So we can misinterpret texts like this. Psalm 34, verse 19. says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Say, well, there it is. You can misinterpret that and say, you're going to come out of this. Now, Might I offer to you that all of our afflictions, we will come out of all of them, but it might not be till glory, right, for some of these. All of our afflictions one day will be behind us, but it might not be till glory. And so let's not promise an immediate deliverance, but rather what should you do? Instead, remind them of the promised presence and help of God. doesn't mean that deliverance out of those circumstances, what God promises for this life, but he does, again, promise his presence. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, right? He's there for you now. 
He's our refuge and strength. And then going on, there's a repetition here in this psalm in verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And again in verse 11, at the end of the psalm, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Here's what's promised, friend. Here's what's promised. He will be with you. As you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, He will comfort you. His rod and His staff will comfort you. That's what we can expect. Don't encourage them to just move on. Instead, show them biblical examples of lament. There's lots of lament in the Bible. If you stop to really look at it, in the Psalms, Lamentations, the whole book of lament, called Lamentations. So you can show them Psalm 13 and 88. Look with me at Psalm 88. We'll we'll spend a moment there. And maybe you've considered this about Psalm 88, that it's the only psalm that ends without a note of hope. But praise the Lord that this psalm is in the Bible. This is the way that Psalm 88 ends. Okay, Usually you have this, uh, there's, there's some darkness... Right, And then there's light at the end of the psalm for those who are in despair. These psalms of lament. But this is the way Psalm 88 ends. Verse 17, They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And that's how it ends. How can that be a comfort to somebody who is grieving? A couple of reasons come to mind. First of all, your suffering friend can be reminded that they can trust God. Because the word of God is true to life. So often we think about the songs that we sing at church. And and the majority of them, the vast majority of them are all very happy. Right? Almost triumphant. There are very few... Uh, at least popular level, um, good songs that are songs of lament that we sing in church. While there are so many of the psalms that actually do the lamenting. We need to learn how to lament, and the scriptures are the best place for us to learn, obviously. But they can be encouraged, saying, you, you can say, hey, hey let's, let's walk through Psalm 88 together. Does this parallel your heart? Do you feel like this? Does this sound familiar to you in your own heart? Isn't God's word good that there is, there's nothing that you're experiencing that you can't find help for? And, and, and you can find that actually the word of God resonates with you in your suffering. John Calvin said of the Psalms that there is a psalm for every sigh of the soul. That's one of them. You know also as you look to Psalm 88 where to take your grief even when the grief remains. The hopeful part, I think, even though it doesn't end on a note of hope, Psalm 88 shows us, listen, He-Man, I think that's He-Man. It makes me think of He-Man. I grew up with He-Man. But um, that's he's the author, right? H-E-M-A-N. He's writing this and I think to myself, 
Well, the hopeful thing is that he keeps going back to God. The grief remains, but where is he going with that grief? He's returning to God again and again and again. And so even though the circumstances haven't changed, the grief hasn't gone away, he hasn't given up going to God. That's the hopeful part. And you can tell your friend, don't give up. I know you feel like throwing in the towel right now, but keep going back to God even when the grief remains. What else? Don't focus on whether or not they are at fault. This is not the time for it. The initial stages of grief are not the time for it. No. When grief is fresh, this is not the time to pinpoint contributing personal sin. Look with me over at Proverbs for a couple of helpful words of instruction. 15.23 to make an apt answer is a joy to a man and a word in season. How good it is. A timely word. A timely word. A word in season. How good it is. And so we need to choose the right time to speak the words that we speak. And so something very similar we read in Proverbs 25, verse 11, a word fitly spoken. Or the CSB, I like, says... Um, a word spoken at the right time is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Choose the right time for the words that you speak. They could be the right words at the wrong time. We want to speak the right words at the right time. Instead of pinpointing possible fault, personal guilt related to the trial that they're suffering... Remind them of the overflowing mercy of God for those in trial or sin or both. Okay? We see that in Psalm 40, actually. You just remind them of the the grace and the mercy of God. And, And it's for those who are suffering and for those who are in sin. Look with me at a couple of verses in Psalm 40, verses 11 and 12 in particular. I love this, verse 11. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. And here's the connection. For, or because, evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. David, in writing this, He's talking about his own personal guilt, but he's also talking about the evils that surround him, his trials, his enemies. And so he's walking with personal sin, but he's also walking in a situation in which it's hard because of other people too, because of enemies and circumstances that are deep, hurtful. But the mercy is for the suffering and for the sinner, right? In this text, a mercy that is not restrained from God. And don't assume you know God's reason for their suffering either. Don't assume you know the reason for their suffering. You don't want to be like Job's friends. They assume they knew the reason for Job's suffering. That was the whole problem. We we get to see behind the curtain. We get to see um, in, in heaven 
Satan, that whole interaction between God and Satan, we know that God is, is testing Job. We know, yes, he's a righteous man. It's not because of his personal sin, but Job's friends are like, no, no, it must be because you've sinned. God, it would be unjust for God to do this if you hadn't have sinned. That's what they're saying, and it's how they see it. But we don't want to be like that. In fact, by the way, if, if you look at Job chapter 16, verse 2, it says, Job speaking says, miserable comforters are you all. That's what he calls them. Like, you don't even know how to comfort somebody. So we, we can't trace God's hand in these situations. We try to read providence sometimes, don't we? We know his heart, even if we can't trace his hand. I think there was Spurgeon that said that. When you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Major on God's heart in their grief. Don't try to figure out why God's doing something. Now, one day they'll be able to look back and see what God did, and they can, in 2020... They can say, okay, yeah, I, I see that now. In hindsight, why God was doing that to bring me to this place. But, but in the moment, it's not helpful. Psalm 119, verse 68, just says something simple. We need to remind sufferers of who God is, his heart. It says, you are good and you do good. You are good and you do good. Both are true. Maybe they return to him with trust in these Attributes of his. Yes. I am over time. Thank you so much. Okay. We're, we're uh, at the very end. I'm going to fly through these. Okay. You've got those right there. All right. Action two. Ministry of comfort continues with actions. Precise and intentional action. What do I mean by that? You need to avoid blanket offers of help. Let me know if you need anything. How many of us have said that? I know I have many times. Why is that, even if it's well-intentioned, why is that bad? Because it places the burden on the sufferer, first of all, to think of what he needs and then ask for it, which is not likely, since no one wants to feel like they're inconveniencing others. So Dave Furman was getting that in his book as well that comes from him. So be specific. Just and, and you know what? Don't wait on them to ask. Do something. Just take a meal over, you know? Just just call them up. Just go pick them up and, and, and take them. Hey, let's go hit some golf balls if that's what you do. I, I don't know. <laughs> Be precise and intentional with the action that you give. And then just a couple more. You already got those? Okay. Church action so important for the the church to gather around these people, not just you as an individual, but the church family. The church is outfitted for ministry to sufferers, right? 1 Corinthians 12 talks about all the different parts of the body that are gifted by the Spirit for the common good, right? The The good of the whole, the good of the whole body. So there's no better place for a sufferer than the local church, when the local church is doing what it ought to do and using their gifts so that the church is built up and cared for. If one suffers, we all suffer, Paul says, right? Sufferers need more than a counselor in their grief. More than just you. They need the church. So how can you connect other church members to those with fresh grief instead of futilely trying to bear the burden alone?
Okay. I'm sorry for going over. I apologize. But let's pray. Father, thank you. Help us to comfort as you comfort. We cannot do it apart from your spirit. May this wisdom bring us closer to being like Christ, the sympathizer, the great um, sympathizer, the one who is in our shoes and knows what we've gone through so that he can um, draw near to us in our grief and also so that we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.